at the end of the day, when we have to look back on our lives, to be able to say, in a small way, I moved the needle to make life better, is actually something that money can't buy. And it may not feel like that, but that is exactly what we're doing. And I do look back and I think, wow, the stuff that I'm proudest of, the the stuff that I really feel, you know, if my life ended today, it was worth living, was the stuff that I did when I was in the charity sector. Because it, it, you know, it, it will have just changed someone's life for the better. That is something that you cannot buy or find anywhere else. This is season three of the Charity CEO podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. I'm Livia O'Connor, and I never imagined that this show that I started as an experiment during the pandemic would turn into a number one ranked global podcast with thousands of listeners all across the world. It is truly humbling to know that the show's content is valued by so many. And thanks to our season three sponsor, Eden Tree, I will continue to bring you inspirational and engaging conversations with a host of leaders who are all truly driving change in the non-profit space. Edentree themselves are owned by a charity and have led the way in responsible and sustainable investing for over three decades. Thank you to Edentree. Now, on with the show. Leonor Stierpich is the CEO of the Montessori Group. Rooted in the child-centered approach to education and learning that was created by Dr. Maria Montessori over a hundred years ago, the organization's vision and mission is to prepare children for the current realities of the world they are growing up in, and to equip them with the tools that would enable them to grow up to have a positive and transformational impact on the world. We talk about their new leadership program that overlays Montessori values such as curiosity, compassion, and collaboration onto a leadership development framework for leaders at executive and board level. Leonor shares some brilliant personal stories and advice gleaned from her own leadership journey over the past 20 years, as well as her quest to share one million stories of kindness through the Kindness Matters campaign. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hi, Leonor. Welcome to the show. Delighted to have you as a guest here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So we are continuing season three with the tradition of starting the show with an icebreaker round. I have five questions for you. And if you're ready, we can get started. Yep, let's go for it. Question one. As a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up? Oh, an archaeologist. I can, and let me tell you why. I had a teacher at the time, and this is how old I am. When I was at primary school, the Tutankhamun exhibition came to the British Museum. I didn't get to see it because I was too young, but I became fascinated by this. And then I decided that that was what I was going to be when I grew up. I was going to be not just an archaeologist, I was going to be an Egyptologist. Of course, that didn't happen, but that was my dream. Wow, what a wonderful dream. Question two, what would you say is your professional superpower? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. My professional superpower. Oh, I think that, and this is something I've learned over many, many decades, is to trust my intuition. That would be it, I think. Excellent. Question three, what are three qualities you think are essential as a leader? Okay, 
Well, the first has got to be you have to be authentic. You have to bring yourself to the role. If you don't, people will soon discover that it's not really you. So that I think that would be the first one. The second one, I think, has to be, I should think probably empathy, because you have to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. I think there's a difference between being empathetic and understanding where the other person's coming from and kind of immersing yourself and trying to be, the, you know, sort of solve other people's problems. But you have to at least understand where the other person's coming from. And I third one, I think, would have to be the ability to always have a plan B, plan C and plan D. Mm-hmm. And probably plan Z as well oh, in the current context. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Question four, what are three things that you think adults could learn from children? To continue to be curious about everything in the world. To ask questions, not to be afraid to ask questions, and not to be afraid of the unknown. And our final icebreaker question, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? Well, that's that's a tricky one. You'd think that I would say Maria Montessori, wouldn't you? Because, you know. I did think you might say that. But actually, it wouldn't. I think what I would actually would go back and I would ask a question of Elizabeth I. And the question that I would ask her would be, how did she manage to create the image she created? And how did she manage to to handle the power and keep him in power for so long, given that she was a woman. I mean, we talk about being in a male environment in modern times, but that was a very male environment. Mm. I think that would be quite interesting to hear how she managed that. Yes, I would be fascinated to hear her answer indeed. And talking, of course, of Dr. Maria Montessori, Leonor, you are the chief executive of the Montessori Group. Yes, Yes. So I'd like to start off our conversation talking about Montessori education. And for those listeners who may not be familiar with the work of Dr. Maria Montessori, can you tell us what Montessori education is? Yeah. And how it is different from other approaches to early years learning? Okay, so so Maria Montessori's, it's an approach rather than a curriculum, which means that it can actually fit into any education system in the world. It's child-centered, so it's about following the child. What, what is the child wanting to do? And following the child's natural inclination, because that is what will make a child learn. We talk about freedom within a framework, and the framework is there to provide safety for the child and, and, a, and a safe space. But within that framework, we allow the child to choose what activities it does, when it does them, how long it does them for. Because children, some children, it takes them less time to do, say, a maths problem. It might only take them 10 minutes. And if they then have to sit for sort of, you know, 50 minutes whilst everyone else is trying to work out the maths problem, you can get very bored. And for some children, it may take them two hours to work out a maths problem. And it's about allowing that child to learn. So I'm just, that's just an example. It's actually not that different from where a lot of early years education is at the moment. And this is one of the things that I find quite fascinating that the Montessori approach is quite widespread. It's just that people don't call it Montessori because it's almost become part of normal practice in early years education and I've had this conversation with many people when they've asked me this and they said oh but we do that and I've said well that's great you know you kind of you're doing Montessori without realizing it but it's very much that 
focus on trusting the child to learn. There are other elements of it, such as learning through activity. That's really important. So you learn not just abstract concepts, but actually through your senses. And obviously, which is very you know valid today, this thing about sort of indoor and outdoor classrooms. So learning about the world around them, learning about nature, you know, being encouraged to grow things and interact with nature is really important because we talk about nowadays, you know, sort of the buzzwords around, you know, education for sustainability. Well, Maria Montessori was actually doing that 100 years ago. She didn't necessarily use those buzzwords, but that was the concept. It's still the same concept of teaching children about the world around them and understanding that they are part of a bigger world, that they need to respect that world, respect each other, respect themselves. So I think it's not that different because of the influence of Montessori throughout the decades. I really love that baseline value of respect and indeed learning through the senses. Yes. So tell us more about your organization, the Montessori Group, and what is your work about and what is your vision and mission at the organization? So the group consists of of two entities, really, which is a charity that owns a company as well. We also have co-created the International Montessori Institute with Leeds Beckett University last year, which provides degrees, Montessori degrees. So we have a whole range of activities. At the heart of everything we do is social impact. That's our vision and our mission, is actually going back to where Maria Montessori started, And Maria Montessori's first school was in the slums of Rome at the beginning of the 20th century. So you can imagine the sort of the conditions that she worked in. And one of the first Montessori schools, nurseries in the UK, was actually set up by the suffragettes in the East End of London. So when I became CEO three years ago, that was very much what I wanted us to go back to, to sort of thinking she started from working with the most socially disadvantaged children in society. So we need to go back to that. And it's not just about supporting the child, although, of course, we are child-centered, but about supporting the families as well. Maria Montessori was a pioneer in women's rights. She spoke at the first International Congress for Women's Rights in 1896, even before she thought of the Montessori approach, talking about equal pay. So it's very much about kind of how do we support that empowerment of the family, empowerment of the women, support the child. So social impact is at the heart of everything we do. We have a whole range of activities from purely social impact projects done in collaboration with others. So for example, we have a six-year partnership with the Jane Goodall Institute Roots and Shoots program. We've done some work quite recently working with a, a small NGO that's working with street children in Pakistan. Then we have our higher education work. As I said, we, we are, through the International Montessori Institute, we're able to offer degrees, accelerated degrees in Montessori education, actually the the first in the UK to be solely Montessori education, they start in September. But we recognize that also we need to make it accessible to as many people as possible. So we offer also scholarships, because although people may have the opportunity to apply for a student loan, there may be other barriers to them coming to study. So we want to support everyone who's interested We're doing masters and PhDs and research through the International Montessori Institute as well, and we'll have the world's first professor of Montessori education. We do further education through host centers that are around the country to make it more accessible. We have an accreditation scheme that is very much a nurturing, supportive journey for people that want to commit to quality, and that's open to anyone, whether they're Montessori or not. 
And we also have our Montessori Network, which is a free online resource for families and practitioners who are interested in Montessori. Again, whether they're related to Montessori in any way or not, it's really about supporting families. And we are thinking of doing Montessori in Leadership, which is our next initiative as well. Wow, sounds like you're really covering a a lot of ground there. And I know that Dr. Maria Montessori was such a champion of humanitarian causes as well as being an educator and a scientist. So it's great to hear that social impact is really at the center of everything that you're doing. And I know that you operate in in over 70 countries across Mm -hmm. the world. Um, So, Lena, I'm curious to hear in the context of where we are right now, what you have seen this past year in terms of the pandemic impact on education and what your opinion is on how we collectively move forward towards achieving SDG4, the UN Sustainable Development Goal of ensuring equitable and quality education for all. Well, obviously, the pandemic has had a big impact, just starting from families you know I mean this is actually why we we enhanced the work on the Montessori network at the beginning of the first lockdown in March 2020 because we could suddenly see that a lot of families had to cope with having children at home of course there were nurseries open for key workers but you know not all nurseries could be open not all primary schools were open and therefore we wanted to support families so that's part of kind of this demand that there was for additional support. I think what that has done, if we can bring some positives, because I am an optimistic sort of person, so some of the positives is, and we've seen this from some of the surveys we've done of families, is that it did give parents a chance to understand a little bit more in depth of the importance of that early years education and how difficult it can be to have your children at home the whole time and trying to do a full-time job at the same time as I'm sure that a lot of your listeners will will sort of understand that will resonate with a lot of people but it also for children it was also a chance to sort of you know have a little bit more freedom as well so there so there was a, a little bit of benefit however having said that it's been incredibly difficult for families because it's gone on for so long it's been obviously incredibly difficult for the sector a lot of nurseries are struggling and this is a big issue and, and you know this is why we were one of the signatories to the letter that was written to the telegraph recently around asking government to put children at the heart of everything that they do because it's had a big impact. And of course, it's it's a huge shift for families, for children, you know, children having to deal with fear, having to deal with acting in a different way. We, we've we had sort of reports of toddlers going to hug another toddler in the street and being shouted at, for example. And that's sort of Aww. really, you know, incredibly difficult if you're, if you're a small child, you, you know, understanding why can't I go and hug my friend you know the sort of things like that so so there's a lot of obviously issues around mental health we're looking to work with a project with a collaborator another NGO on actually what can we do to support that mental health issue of course the economic impact on families is going to be quite tough Again, this is one of the projects that we're doing is with a social enterprise called Vena about trying to support families with plant-based, very good nutritional food boxes because we understand that there are families that actually might be struggling. And when we talk about the environment in Montessori, we, as the Montessori group, see it as the whole environment. You know, if children are hungry or not well-nourished, they're not going to learn. So we need to look wider 
than just what happens within the classroom. So I think it's an incredibly difficult time. I think that what the pandemic should teach us are two things, and particularly around the sort of achievement of UN SDG 4. The first is that we are in a world of complete change, not just because of the pandemic, but what the pandemic has done is accelerated many of the issues that were sort of bubbling under the surface. And therefore, we need to really think about what is the purpose of education for the future? What is life going to be in the future? And support children in a way that enables them to have the tools to, to live this new life that is going to be, that what the future is going to be. I hear people talk about, oh, we're soon going to go back to normal. We are never going to go back to where we were before, ever. I agree. And the sooner we realize that, and the sooner we try and have you know, global discussions about what that world now looks like, the sooner we can get around to sort of deciding what the education system is that would allow children to be prepared for that new world. So I think that's one of them. I think the second thing that I think the pandemic has taught us is that we have to talk to others and work together. We have to collaborate. And there is no point in being tribal or nationalistic about these things, you know, what affects one country will have a knock-on effect on another country. And therefore, we have to work together to achieve these SDG goals because we can't do things in isolation. Completely agree with you there. And collaboration has certainly been such a big theme that has come out of the pandemic, certainly with my conversations with many leaders across the sector as well. And Leonor, I'd like to come back to talk about the leadership program that you mentioned before, but it feels like actually this might be a nice segue to talk about a global campaign that I know the Montessori Group is leading in collaboration with the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, which is the Kindness Matters campaign. So can you tell us about how this campaign came about and what you are hoping to achieve through it? Yes, absolutely. So this is an initiative of the UNESCO and the Mahatma Gandhi Institute. And we were talking to them and they said, well, we'd love to get young people involved, you know, get children involved. The idea is to collect one million stories of kindness across the world to be able to then go to UNESCO in November and ask them to create a UNESCO International Day of Kindness. But I think Obviously, you know, that that's the, the purpose of the campaign, but it has a bigger purpose than that. And I think that the bigger purpose, certainly as far as we're concerned, is, first of all, celebrating the many, many, many acts of kindness that have happened. And I think it can be sometimes quite depressing to read the news and to see what's going on in the world. But underneath that, there are some fantastic acts of kindness going on. And I think we need to sort of talk about them and celebrate them because it's important. You know, my experience is, and I'm I'm not an idealist by any chance. I'm too old to be an idealist. But what I have seen and have been very fortunate to see is the very best of people and the very worst, but certainly the very best. And when you see these individual acts of kindness, it is so uplifting and so inspiring that I think it's important that we celebrate that. And they can be small things, really tiny little things. Yeah, I'll give you an example. 
We had one child write in to say, oh, you know, I weeded my grandmother's garden because she wasn't feeling well. And you just sort of think, you know, that that's just such a lovely thing that sort of, you know, it has to bring a smile to your face to think about something like that. So there can be very, very small acts of kindness. So that's a bigger thing is about kind of celebrating that. But I think also if we can encourage everybody to actually think about that and think, well, I'm going to do what just one act of kindness a day, then, it, you know, we begin to have a different world because it, a, it automatically makes you feel good to do something you know, for someone else. But also it kind of starts creating that thinking of doing something for someone else and doing something that's not just about yourself. And I think that that's a really important way of living your life that can only help bring this new world around that we so desperately need. So I think it's a it's a really important campaign and I'd love for people to get involved. I'd love to hear more stories of kindness. I think it'd be fantastic for, for people to share with them. And as I said, it doesn't have to be very kind of like world shifting, just something that, you know, people have done every day would be lovely. I love that. One million stories of kindness. And mm. yes, I certainly think we could all do with more kindness in the world and celebrating that. Absolutely. A number of other leaders that I've spoken to on this podcast have actually talked about the need for compassionate yes. leadership yeah. and leadership that is really empathetic to where people are right now and how we all need to move forward from the current state of the world with kindness. So, Coming back then to your Montessori leadership program that I understand is based on a charter for compassion yeah. and essentially seeks to embed a values-based approach from the classroom to the boardroom. Tell us more about this, Leonor. Well, I think that we've all seen this. We've seen good leadership and we've seen bad leadership during the pandemic. And I think, again, what the pandemic has done is that it has exposed people in a way that they can't hide things as easily. And so what we believe is that the Montessori values, those values of respect, those values of empowering children, those values of giving children freedom within a framework are very much what modern leadership should be about. And as leaders, being guides and facilitators and being observant of what is going on around you is really important. And, you know, I'm, we're very fortunate we've just partnered with the Global Responsible Leadership Initiative because I strongly believe that being a leader requires you to be responsible, not just accountable for the actions of your organization, but you have to have, I think, a deep sense of responsibility about what it is that you're trying to achieve and the people that you work with. And that doesn't necessarily have to be your staff. It can also be your beneficiaries, if it's in a charity or your customers, if it's a company, your stakeholders, the people that you collaborate with. That sense of responsibility about being thoughtful as to how your actions will interact. I, I was at a conference many years ago and somebody made a comment, which I thought to me just still resonates with me today. Um, and when you sort of um, uh, learn, if you, if you do management training, if you do a degree or an MBA or something, they talk about, you know, you learn about value chains. And this person talked about a value web. And that made me think about the interconnectedness of everything that we do and how everything doesn't have to be linear. Everything doesn't have to be top down. 
And that's really what this sort of Montessori and leadership program is going to be. We are actually going to create training around leadership using these sort of Montessorian values. And part of it is going to be also what we call the impact program for boards, for charity boards particularly. Because having been a charity CEO for 20 years, I've had some really fantastic trustees and I've had some not so fantastic trustees. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, but also from talking to others, to my peers, that when you don't have a board that understands about leadership and understands about not just how they lead, but how they interact with each other and how they interact with the executive team, you have real problems because you get distracted and taken off task. And at the end of the day, my job as a charity CEO is to actually deliver the mission that will benefit the beneficiaries. And if I'm being taken off task because I'm having to deal with board politics, I'm not doing my job properly. I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I am not being responsible to the people who I should be responsible to. And I think that that there's some work that needs to be done there. I think it's so fascinating how you are overlaying the Montessori education values onto the leadership approach, if you like. And, and I like what you said about freedom within a framework and then the value web of interconnectedness. I think that's so relevant uh, for CEOs and board members today as well. And so talking about leadership, Leonor, I'd love to hear more about your own background and your career journey and how have you gotten to where you are today? So tell us your story. Okay. Well, first of all, I am the first woman in my family to have a career. Oh, wow. I'm the first woman in my family to get to a senior role. And that's because of education. And that's why I'm so passionate about giving every child the opportunity to fulfill their potential. Because if I hadn't had that opportunity, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm, I'm very clear about that. So my involvement in the charity sector really started when I was 18, and I helped set up the Amnesty Working Group for Children at a time when children's rights wasn't part of Amnesty. And this was a voluntary group. And when Amnesty did make it part of its mandate, and it was sort of brought into in-house professionally, we, we, we disbanded the group. But at that time, to be honest, going into a job in the charity sector did not appeal, because this was the 80s. It wasn't really what I wanted. So I went into the private sector, and I spent probably about the first what, third of my career in the private sector doing a whole range of jobs from merchant banking to academic publishing to working to, for a record company before setting up my own business as a consultant, helping um, small and medium-sized enterprises with change and transformation. Then I was very fortunate. I had a really lucrative contract that ended and which was actually based in Spain because I'm bilingual Spanish and I didn't have to go and find another contract so I decided to volunteer to work in a refugee camp in Croatia during the war what I didn't expect was to meet my husband there but um, I did hence the <laughs> stiepish bit of the name but when I when I finished doing that and and that was mostly sort of working with children and and women who unfortunately had been raped and when I finished doing that I came back to London and I thought I do not want to go back into running my own business this is what I want to do for the rest of my life so I basically 
got a job in a charity as a receptionist. I was very fortunate that the CEO at the time of that charity actually gave me a job because she said, you are so overqualified for this. Why do you want it? And I said, well, I actually want to work for a charity. And she said, okay, which is quite unusual. I have to say, I now realize actually how quite unusual that was. And it was a charity that was going through a transformation. She'd been brought in to do a transformation. And of course, that was kind of, I knew how to do that. So in my spare time, I actually wrote her a strategy and then went to see her and said, this is what I think you should do for the next six months. Let me do it don't pay me anymore. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to being a receptionist. But if it works, then we can have a conversation. And then it did work. And so that was kind of where I started my professional career in the charity sector. And I sort of worked with her on that. I sort of kind of fell into fundraising because there was no one doing the fundraising at the time. And then I took on another fundraising job after I'd left there and then was headhunted for my first CEO role which was as CEO of the Galapagos Conservation Trust. I was their first CEO. This was a small charity that had been run by the founders. So I was there for six years. And then I moved to run a medical research institute. And I did that for 11 years and then went to work for Montessori Group. So Wow. That is such a brilliant story, Leonor. So much rich detail there. And I love the bit about how you, as a receptionist, essentially led the strategic transformation of the charity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had to say that was down to the seat. I mean, you know, she could have just said, oh, go away. What are you talking about? But she didn't. She she actually listened. And and that was really good that she listened and took me seriously. So it goes to show you can never tell who has information or knowledge or ideas. And another really good and important quality in a leader is the ability to listen. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. And not discount anything because I always say, you know, I I don't have all the ideas. I don't know who might have the next best idea for us as an organization. And it really could be anyone in the organization. It doesn't have to be someone that's necessarily in that area. So you know, just being open to people and listening to ideas. And and sometimes I find this, somebody will say something and it's it's not quite right, but it sparks another idea in my head that I go, okay. And then we do get to where we want to be, but it, it wasn't necessarily my idea initially. It was just actually a completely different sort of thought that someone had or question that someone had. And just building on that a little bit then, Leonor, what advice would you give to yourself on, on day one of first becoming a CEO? Oh, just absolutely always ask questions. Always, always listen to people. I've always done that anyhow, because that's just kind of, I'm just naturally curious. I guess if I was going to go back, I would say the one thing I would say is, I think I said at the beginning, the importance of intuition, and I had to learn to listen to my intuition. And I think that would be the thing if I was to go back now, I would say, actually, don't be afraid to listen to your intuition. Because often at the beginning of my career as a CEO, I would sort of have, I I think about something. I think, oh, I really don't think that's right. Oh, I think I should be doing that. And then I would be argued out of it because I hadn't trusted my initial sort of gut feeling, as it were. And what I realized is that actually when we talk about intuition, it's, it's, it's nothing sort of mystical. Often it's our brain sort of quickly pro or our unconscious quickly processing a lot of information that we or a lot of knowledge or experience that we probably have and coming to an answer. So it's not necessary, it's not, you know, sort of 
woo, coming from the ether. It's it's actually probably there and based on on things that we've done before or experienced or seen or heard or read and it's all sort of pulling it together I mean the brain is an amazing thing we we don't quite yet know how it all works so I think you know so when I say about intuition often I realize when I think back on it actually I know why my first reaction was that because I can sort of track back so yeah I wonder if that would be the answer that Elizabeth I would give that one of the reasons that she was so powerful and successful was that she listened to her own intuition and instinctively what she felt was right. Probably. And and also not being afraid to do something just because you've never done it before. When I was CEO of the Medical Research Institute, we spun out a company because we'd invented something that needed to go to market. And at the time, and the traditional route to market was to find another company that had, you know, VC back in to actually take it to market. And this was at the time of the recession, we couldn't find a company. So we came up with this idea of, well, why don't we set up our own company and find finance? We couldn't finance it, but, you know, we need millions and find social investment to do it. And the first four investors said, well, we will invest if you are the CEO. And I said, I'm not a scientist. And I've never run a life science company. And I have a job. And they said, yes, but we're not going to invest unless you do it because you have a track record for delivery and you know the project and stuff. So I was actually CEO concurrently for both the company and the charity for, for five years. But what was really interesting was the number of times I'd say, oh, I think we're going to go out and raise this much money. And people would say to me in the sector, oh, but that's not the way it's normally done. And I remember doing one presentation once and where I had a slide where I actually put that up. And I said, if I had had a pound for every time someone had said to me, that's not the way it's normally done, I wouldn't actually have had to go out and fundraise for anything because I would have had all the money I needed. And it was quite interesting that I, I just felt instinctively right for us to do this. And it really attracted a lot of funding. I mean, we raised, I think, six million pounds in the end in social investment. Well done, you. I didn't know anything about social investment. I didn't know anything about life sciences. And a lot of it was, and one of the things I did, which again, and everybody told me, oh, no, you don't, you don't do this. But I thought, well, why not? Is I actually went to a lot of investors in that sector and said to them, tell me where things have gone wrong, where you've made an investment. I don't want your money, but I do want you to tell me where you've invested and it's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong, so that we don't do that. And so many people said to me, no one's ever asked me that before. And it was just, and I just kept thinking, well, why not? And I think to a certain extent, there's, yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions because it can lead you to all sorts of different things. I have a rule that I tell my executive team that every time I hear the words, that's not the way it's normally done, it's like a light switch goes off <laughs> in my head and say, aha, that <laughs> means there's something broken with the process or this is something that can be improved upon uh, exactly. and needs some scrutiny. Exactly. So, Leonor, what would you say is most inspiring about being the CEO of the Montessori Group? I think what's most inspiring to me is the people that I meet who are actually practitioners. I think that the way their dedication, their commitment, I mean, this is true of any, obviously any charity, but I think there's something really remarkable about watching practitioners with children. I think there really is. But also just seeing 
how children flourish and blossom and and just things like that I think just you know I'm very fortunate because often you know you can work for a charity where you don't see that you don't actually see almost the instant reaction whilst I think with with education you do because particularly with young children when you see a young child solve a problem and their face lights up you know you see that instantly and I think there's something sort of just so amazing about seeing that but as I said, you know, having, having been the product of education, I can also see where that's going to lead and the potential that that has for that child. And again, that's something that's very powerful for me. I mean, that's very meaningful for me. It's what makes me get up in the mornings and work the hours I work, I think. My husband has a phrase that he uses in describing our children as we've obviously been watching them grow up. And he says, it's like watching perfection discover itself. Oh, yes, that's lovely. I love that. Yeah. And I, I can see, Leonor, from what you're saying, you know, that real joy of discovery and watching a child blossom must just be so rewarding indeed. And in closing now, I mean, this has been such a fascinating and insightful discussion. Do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share? I mean, what is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? I would say that if you are involved in the charity sector, in the not-for-profit sector, whether as a leader, whether as a member of the exec team, whether as a volunteer, it's really worthwhile. I think often it can feel very hard. It can feel very difficult. I took, as I'm sure many did, I took a 75% pay cut when I went into the charity sector. It is not a sector where you're necessarily going to have the most wealthy lifestyle possible compared to, say, going into being the CEO of a company, for example. But at the end of the day, when we have to look back on our lives, to be able to say, in a small way, I moved the needle to make life better is actually something that money can't buy. And it may not feel like that, but that is exactly what we're doing. And I, and I say this from a, let me, let me tell you from, from my own personal experience. I, I had cancer last year and I'm very lucky. I was managed to get treatment. I'm in remission. But it really made me focus on, okay, you know, reflect on my life because you do when you, you have these sort of life-changing situations. And I do look back and I think, wow, the stuff that I'm proudest of, the, the stuff that I really feel, you know, if my life ended today, it was worth living, was the stuff that I did when I was in the charity sector. Because it, it you know, it, it will have just changed someone's life for the better. That is something that you cannot buy or find anywhere else. So do not ever despair. I know sometimes it can feel quite stressful and it can feel like a struggle and it can feel quite difficult. And you can look around you and think, oh, you know, how come my peers is, you know, going off on, you know, five holidays a year and I can't afford to do that. But you're going to have something at the end of your life that others aren't necessarily going to be fortunate enough to have. So do not despair and keep doing what you do. Thank you, Leonor, on that inspirational and really powerful note. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure. I've loved speaking to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed my conversation with Leonor Stierpich, CEO of the Montessori Group. 
I love how the organization has developed a leadership program based on the core principles and values of the Montessori early years education approach. And I completely agree with Leonor's message to charity sector leaders that at the end of the day, the knowledge that our work and efforts have helped make someone else's life better is something that money can't buy and that we should all be proud of. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Charity CEO Podcast, a show that, thanks to you, our listeners, has repeatedly reached the number one spot in Apple's non-profit podcast category. If you found this conversation valuable, please help spread the word. Share or tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram, and make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you're feeling inspired or uplifted by what you have just heard, please share the joy by leaving us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details, information on past season guests, and to submit ideas for future guests. Thanks again to our Season 3 sponsor, Eden Tree, and thank you for continuing to listen. <laughs>